0: If you have Bibles, you can go ahead and make your way to uh, the book of Genesis, chapter 13. It's the very beginning of your Bible. And if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles uh, that Rachel referred to a couple moments ago, page 9 is where you will find Genesis, chapter 13. In the early church, uh, before they were ever known as Christians, followers of Jesus were simply known as the way. The way. And I don't recommend kind of referring to yourself as a Christian that way in this day and age because you'll sound a lot like a cult. So I don't recommend that. But why I love that is that it reminds us that faith is anything but static. Faith is anything but static. Uh, It can actually be a little bit misleading when Christians refer to someone as a believer or an unbeliever. On one level, it it makes perfect sense. And what that refers to is is whether a person has put his or her faith in in the finished work of Jesus Christ, in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And we each make a decision where we say, yes, I I believe Jesus is who he claimed to be, and I'm going to follow him. Or we say, no, I, I don't really believe that. I'm not ready to make any kind of decision like that. But on another level, each and every one of us is this crazy mixture of both belief and unbelief, of faith and faithlessness. And we saw that really clearly last week in Genesis chapter 12. We see these two uh, contrasting sides of Abraham. There's this beautiful and bold faith. He follows God away from his past and into this promised land. And then immediately turns around, travels down to Egypt, brazenly faithless, and exploits his wife for his own gain. And so Abraham's life shows us that it's not just a single decision of faith. It's a way of of faith that we are called to. Faith is an ongoing, it's an active participation in the call and in the promises of God. And what that means functionally is that it's not just ever one decision, it's thousands of little decisions. And God, through our lives, keeps beckoning us onward and He keeps drawing us into more and more opportunities to live out this faith that we profess. When we are faithful in those decisions today, then God calls us to be faithful in those same decisions or other decisions tomorrow. And when we're faithless today, God calls us back and he says, be faithful in those things tomorrow. After he departs from Egypt, we see Abraham continue on in the way of faith. And so I invite you now to listen, listen with open ears to this book that we love. Genesis chapter 13, I'm going to start in verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negeb. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negeb as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, in the, well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. God, our help, show us your holy ways, teach us your paths. By your Holy Spirit, open our minds that we may be led in your truth and taught your will. And then may we praise you by listening to your word and by obeying it. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Three things uh, that we are going to consider today from Genesis 13 about the way of faith. We'll talk about the return of faith, the priorities of faith, and the eyes of faith. The return of faith, the priorities of faith. In the eyes of faith. So, first, let's talk about the return of faith. The beginning of of Genesis 13 here describes Abraham backtracking along the exact same path that he went down to Egypt. During this series that we're in, looking at the life of Abraham, we're gonna talk a lot about faith. But the other piece that's really essential for us to talk about in this series is repentance. Faith and repentance really are two sides of the exact same coin. And by definition, repentance is a twofold turning. We turn away from something and we turn toward something else. And so, for us to, to live by faith in the one true God, for Abraham to do that, for us to do that, requires constant repentance. We're always turning away from every competing interest, every desire that we have that's not in line with the things of God, and we turn back toward God instead. So Abraham quite literally does a 180 and he returns to the promised land, to the land of Canaan along the same route. And that's symbolic as he journeys back into the promised land. It's a tangible expression of Abraham's repentance. So these phrases in verses three and four, the place where his tent had been at the beginning or where he had made an altar at the first, those are the author's ways of highlighting Abraham's repentance. He's not just returning to a plot of ground or a pile of stones. He's returning to God himself. He's returning to his first love. He's returning to his first allegiance. And so when it says there in verse 4 that Abram called upon the name of the Lord, we have not seen Abram call upon the name of the Lord since he left this land so many months or perhaps even years beforehand. All of that time that he was gone in Egypt, never once do we see him call upon the name Lord of God. And actually we get more of the sense when he's in Egypt that he pays no mind to God at all. But now he has returned to the way of faith. He's back in the land and he's worshiping at the altar. So a question for you and me this morning. How should you respond after you sin? How should you respond after you are faithless? After you fail or maybe even fail miserably? And the reason that we have to think through this is because it's not hypothetical. Whether by commission or omission, we've even prayed this way together in our our prayer of confession. By commission or by omission, in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions, in our motivations, this is part of what our lives will entail as we seek to follow Jesus. We're going to fail. We're going to be faithless at times. So we, got, we have to be prepared for, for how to respond in those moments, or when that comes, we're going to be tossed around by the competing voices both from within us and from outside of us. And from my own experience, and maybe this will resonate with some of you, the voices that you most often hear in those incredibly vulnerable moments after you fail, after you sin, are voices of either presumption or penance. Voices of presumption or penance. Voices of presumption sound a little bit like this. It's no big deal. God's gracious. God forgives. Everybody makes mistakes. All of which is is completely true. But it's incredibly presumptive upon God. It's treating God as if his only role in our lives is to bail us out when we fail. And that his role in our life is not also to to be the one that makes an end to sin, to be the one that also directs and leads us into what is truly right and good. So presumption, these voices of presumption, they minimize sin. They they minimize the offense that sin is against a holy God. And they minimize the consequences, the, the ripple effects of sin, not only in our own communion with God, but also in our relationships with other people. So imagine someone saying to Abraham after his time in Egypt, hey, no big deal. No big deal. You you essentially traded your wife for riches in Egypt. No big deal. No, it's a huge deal. It's a huge deal. You rejected the promise of God and you exploited your wife for your own own gain. You'll also in in those moments most likely hear voices of penance. And these voices will try to convince you that you are now a a lost cause, that you don't have a place among God's people anymore, and that if you're ever going to have a place among God's people anymore, your only hope, your only course of action, is to somehow earn your way back into the grace of God and the favor of God. So the thought sounds like this. i got to go get my act together for a while. i got to go clean myself up. I need to spend the next few days or weeks or months or years trying to make amends for the wrong that I've done, and maybe then I can be included again among the people of God. Voices of penance, they blur and distort what is is true. And they also, it's not as obvious necessarily, but they also minimize sin because they suggest it's actually within our ability to earn the forgiveness of God. When in reality, that is a debt that you and I just don't have a hope of ever repaying. So these voices of penance, they leave us with only half of what is true rather than all of what is true. It's kind of like a verse and a refrain in a song. Voices of penance give us the verse that we are great sinners and that we are faithless and that we fail at times. But they forget the refrain that God is a greater Savior. Rather than presumption, rather than penance, respond to sin with repentance and faith. This is not just what we do when we come to know and believe in Jesus for the first time. It's what we do every single day of our lives thereafter. We call sin what it is. It's a big deal. It's an offense to God. It's an offense to others. But we never give sin more weight than the redemptive saving work of God. There's a reason, and Steve alluded to this beautifully earlier, there's a reason that we rehearse this in our liturgy every single Sunday, and that's because Christians, by definition, are a people of repentance and faith, are a people beckoned by God to continue on in the way of faith, whether we have been largely faithful today or whether we've been mostly faithless today beckoned by God to renounce the ways of Egypt and to return to the way of faith where God is our first love, God is our first allegiance. Do you know what Abraham finds when he makes it back to that place between Bethel and Ai? The altar. The altar is there. The altar where he called upon the name of God at the first And so much more than a pile of stones, that's a symbol of this faithful and beckoning voice of God. Abraham has gone down to Egypt and he has been faithless, but God has not moved. The altar stands, the anchor holds. And because it does, Abraham, just like we can, press on in the way of faith. So if you are failing right now, if you look at your life and you largely see failure, Or you largely see faithlessness. Whether that's pride or sexual sin or slander or envy or selfishness. Or if it's not today, but maybe sometime this week or next month or next year, you'll find yourself in a place like that. When that morning after guilt sets in, where we go in our hearts and minds in that moment matters. And one of the great tactics of Satan is to, in those vulnerable moments, to leverage shame to leverage condemnation to sideline you, to make it seem that there is no longer a place for you in God's heart, that there's no longer a place for you in God's story. But in those moments, rather than presumption, rather than penance, tune your heart to the voice of courageous repentance. And nowhere is that articulated better, in my opinion, than Micah chapter 7, verses 8 and 9. I'm going to put it on the board. I would commend this to you. Write this down. Learn it. Rehearse it when you find yourself in the face of failure and faithlessness. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me, he will bring me out to the light and I shall look upon his vindication. I have sinned, but he will bring me into the light. I shall look upon his vindication. When you sin, when you fail, return to your first love. Come back to the place that you worshiped God at the first because you will find that the altar is still standing. And you will find not only is there a place for you in God's heart, not only is there forgiveness through Christ, but there is extraordinary purpose and extraordinary opportunities for you to participate in the advance of the kingdom of God. So come back and then press on in the way of faith. It's because that altar stands that you and I can keep going. So this is what we see in Abraham in Genesis 13. He returns to the way of faith, and then he immediately embodies that way of faith in a really beautiful way in his exchange with Lot. And so second, let's talk about the priorities of faith. If you'll recall from, from Genesis chapter 12, everything was progressing fairly well for Abraham. He's in the land, he's traveling around to different places, worshiping at different altars, and then a severe famine comes. Here again, as soon as he's back on track, another conflict arises. This time it's not a conflict brought about by scarcity like the famine was. This is a conflict introduced by abundance. So Abraham and Sarah and Lot, they leave Egypt, in spite of their faithlessness, they leave Egypt a lot wealthier than they arrived. And they're they're now so wealthy in their possessions, they have so much livestock, so many tents and herdsmen, they can't dwell together on the same plot of land. You probably have had that conversation with your next-door neighbor recently too, right? Can't all fit in the same quarter-acre lot and can't build. As we also saw last week, whenever conflict interrupts the, the flow of the story, it's another opportunity for us to respond with either faith or faithlessness. And so the famine is, is what really interrupted things and prompted this faithlessness in Egypt for Abraham. Here, the strife and the potential strife over trying to dwell in the same place becomes an opportunity that, in which uh, Abraham really demonstrates two priorities of faith. One of them is people over possessions. People over possessions, people over position. That's one priority of faith. So in Abraham's day, as in ours, there's nothing that can create strife or make us treat one another expendably like money or power. If you just turn on the news, if you just uh, open up your social media feed, you will be inundated with, with hundreds of accounts of of those who are choosing possessions over people in that moment. It happens a lot in divorce settlements. It happens a lot when someone dies and they're settling out their estate. It happens when business partnerships break down, when intellectual property rights are being fought over. Really, almost any kind of lawsuit will, will demonstrate people choosing possessions over relationships, over people. The same thing is true with position. When there's power at stake, people will bite and devour and step over all step all over one another. And you probably at some point in your life and maybe you're there right now have have held a job or been part of some kind of organization where you've seen this play out. Not only if you if you just work in corporate America. Nonprofits, even churches can be brutal in this stuff too. And coworkers and employers and employees, they might appear to have these great friendships but the second one of them feels his or her position or his or her power is threatened by the other, watch how shallow, watch how expendable that relationship really is. This is the, this is the way that, that fallen human nature operates. And it's exactly the way that Abraham himself functioned when he was in Egypt. He treated his wife as expendable. But the way of faith prioritizes people over possessions And over position. And here we see Abraham choose his relationship with his nephew over both of those things. He thinks more about Lot than all of this stuff that he has acquired. We are kinsmen, he says. Let's not not let this argument, let's not let this conflict ruin our relationship. And even more remarkable than that, he gives up his position to let Lot choose first. Remember who is who in this story. Abraham is the patriarch of this family. Lot is the nephew who's been tagging along for a number of years now. But rather than put him in his place, Abraham treats Lot with the deference you would expect to see only if it were the other way around. Only if Lot were the patriarch and Abraham were the nephew. The second priority of faith that we see here, open-handed generosity over closed-handed self-preservation. Open-handed generosity is prioritized over closed-handed self-preservation. So so by default, when our lives, in some way, some aspect of our lives feels threatened, we immediately turn to self-preservation. We circle the wagons. We do this with money, we do this with time, we also do this with friendships and relationships, right? I know you've experienced this in your life, or someone very close to you has, Watch how fast your insecurities surface when someone that you consider to be a good friend starts to spend more time with another person or another group of people. Watch how fast you become closed-handed and self-preserving in that moment. As a pastor, I see this proclivity to being closed-handed in my own life when it comes to this church and even you, the, the men and women of this church. So it's it's hard, and I know you feel this too, it's hard to see people leave liberty, even when they leave for perfectly good reasons. And so at times for me, it's, it's genuinely a struggle of faith to trust that God is going to continue to provide the, the people, uh, the time, the skills, the financial resources, the leadership that it takes to be a, a healthy and an effective local church. And so, what can begin for me as a a real desire to shepherd and care for people well can quickly become this kind of closed handed self preservation. How do I keep everybody kind of in their place to to kind of fit all these needs and roles so that it doesn't make my life and everyone else's life harder? In Genesis 13, Abraham lives with open handed generosity. He says to Lot, If you take the left, I'll take the right. You take the right, I'll take the left. He still feels an ownership to steward all that now he has and all that God has given him. So it's not Abraham abandoning responsibility. He's not being apathetic or nonchalant about it. He's just saying, Lot, you can pick first. I'll defer to you. You can have the land that looks best to you. And the only motivation to live this way, to sustain this kind of living, is if we have confidence that we are truly in the hands of God. Confidence that God has you, that he is leading you where he wants you to be, the, the, the more confident that you and I are in that, the freer we do become to prioritize people over possessions and over position, the freer we become to live open-handedly. It's when instead we feel like we have to make our own way in the world to acquire as much wealth, to acquire as much power as possible. That's when we bulldoze people. That's when we treat one another expendably. It's when we feel like nobody's looking out for us So we have to look out for ourselves. That's when we circle the wagons with our money and our time and our relationships. But the way of faith at its essence is the recognition that you are not left to fend for yourself. That you need not make or preserve your own way in this world. But that day by day and decision by decision, you are truly in the hands of God. So where will faith lead you to prioritize people in a way that maybe you struggle to? Where will faith lead you to defer to others, even if societal norms or the title on your business card suggests that they should be deferring to you? Where will faith lead you to be more open-handedly generous? And, And let's pursue this not just as like a collection of individuals, but as a church, Uh, Where can we together as a family of faith be more open-handed to see the good news of Jesus run in the Harrisburg region and beyond that? That's going to take more time. It's going to take more money. It's going to require us all and collectively to be more open-handed with people. It means that we're going to send more of our people, including some of our best people at times, to other fruitful and worthwhile works rather than hanging on to them, clinging to them with closed hands to meet needs here. But if we're truly in the hands of God, then we are really free to be open-handed as a church with our time, with our money, and with our people. We've talked about the return of faith. We've talked about the priorities of faith. Third, let's talk about the eyes of faith. That phrase is a little odd because faith is really all about what we can't see. Uh, that's the description, that's a definition of faith that the author of Hebrews gives us. Faith is the evidence, it's the conviction of things unseen. It's the evidence of what we can't see. But Lot and Abraham, and maybe you heard this as we read Genesis 13, they each use their eyes sometime in this account. Actually, the way that that it's written in there is each of them lifts his eyes. But it could not be more different. Lot, in verse 10, lifts up his own eyes. Abraham, down in verse 14, it's God who calls him to lift his eyes. And so it sounds similar, but that makes all the difference in the world. Who is the lifter of your eyes? Through what lenses do you see the world? Through what lenses do you see your circumstances? Do you see the landscape that is there in front of you? Lot sees the world through his own lenses, And he does what what all of us do when we lift up our own eyes. He picks what appears to be the best and the wisest option. So I don't think Lot is like a uniquely bad decision maker. I don't think he's just like uniquely terrible at that. I think he does exactly what makes sense to him and what looks to be wise. He lifts up his eyes and he sees that the Jordan Valley is well watered. And especially after having to sojourn in Egypt because of a severe famine, living in a well-watered land sounds like a really safe and a really prudent and a really wise decision. With one massive exception. Archaeologists debate the exact location of Sodom, but it's either right on the very eastern edge of the promised land or it's outside the boundaries of the promised land. And Lot has been with Abraham for a lot of years at this point. Uh, He's no doubt heard God's promises given to Abraham about the land. He's no doubt heard God's confirmation when they were in Canaan before Egypt. This truly was the land of promise. So though it looks wise because of the quality of the Jordan Valley, though any passerby would say that the choice is really obvious and that's the place to take your herds, Lot, it would have been better for him to go in any other direction in order to keep himself firmly rooted within the land of God's blessing. And since Moses, who most likely wrote this part of Genesis, clearly never heard of a spoiler alert, we already know how poorly that choice goes for him later. We'll get to that part of the story in a few weeks. Lot uh, lifts up his own eyes, and he does what appears to be best. Here's the reality that's important for us to think about. Sometimes our eyes lie. And sometimes what you see with your eyes is a mirage. The Jordan Valley to Lot looks like the Garden of Eden, but the only similarity that it bears to the Garden is that it is the place where humanity brazenly rebels against God. There's the only similarity. And the fact that Lot has to travel east to get there would have made every reader, every hearer in the original audience cringe. Why? Because in Genesis chapter 3, which direction are Adam and Eve sent out of the Garden of Eden? East. East is not the way, in the book of Genesis, into the garden. East is the way you get sent out of it. And so it's like the reformer John Calvin put it, Lot fancied that he was dwelling in paradise, but he was nearly plunged into the depths of hell. On the other hand, you have Abraham, who waited and deferred and let God be the one who lifted up his eyes whose vision was shaped by the very perspective of God. And Hebron, where Abraham travels, that wasn't as well-watered an area as the Jordan Valley. That meant it was going to be dependent upon rain for its water. It would require that much more faith to live in Hebron in an ongoing way, and especially with this huge caravan of people and livestock. But because it's God who is leading him there, because it's God who is lifting up his eyes, That is the truly wise, that is the truly safe decision. And God responds, we see this at the end of 13, by only further confirming his promises to Abraham. I will give you this land. I will make your offspring as numerous as the dust of the earth. I will give you the length and breadth of this land. Walk through it. It's all going to belong to you and the generations after you. So here's why this is so important for you and me apart from this, apart from this, we will make all of our decisions based only on open and closed doors. A lot of you have been Christians or been in churches for a long period of time. In Christian subculture, Christian lingo, whenever we talk about making decisions, we talk a lot about doors, don't we? I've done it plenty of times, I'll admit, you know, talk about doors a lot. It seems that the way a lot of us functionally make decisions is that whenever there's an open door, we interpret that as God inviting us to walk through it. And whenever, on the other hand, there's a closed door, we interpret that as God saying a definitive no. And sometimes, maybe even often, I don't know, but but at least sometimes, that's exactly right. But there are more than two categories. It's never as simple as walk through all the open doors and stop at all of the closed ones. Sometimes you shouldn't walk through an open door. The, the Apostle Paul, in his missionary journeys, multiple times does not go through open doors that are provided for him. Jesus walks away from crowds think about that, crowds of people who are lining up to hear him teach and heal. He walks that's an open door, if ever there was one, He walks away from that. Other times, you should kick down a closed door. And sometimes you should say, stay exactly where you are and stop obsessing so much about doors altogether eyes are more important than doors. In other words, open and closed doors are only reliable decision-making guides if God is the lifter of your eyes, if your faith is shaping the way that you perceive things. How do you know? Well, in real life, it's not simple at all. And that's exactly why You and I all need mature and godly people around us to help discern whether we're looking through our own lenses or whether we're allowing God to lift our eyes. It's a huge topic about discerning this and kind of thinking about decision making. So for today, I just will be thrilled as your pastor if after considering Lot and Abraham in Genesis 13, we at least expand our paradigm to include more than two categories when it comes to doors. Don't walk through all the open ones just because they're open. And don't say it's definitive no if you stop at a closed door. Genesis 13, it's about the way of faith. And here's what we've seen. Because the altar stands, we can return to faith. Because we are in God's hands, we can pursue the priorities of faith. And because God is the lifter of our eyes, we can see with the eyes of faith. And all of this is possible through the author and perfecter of the way of faith, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who has purchased our forgiveness so that repentance is possible. Jesus is the one who chose people over possessions, who had no wealth, who had no place to lay his head at night. He's the one who chose people over position. He did not not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing and humbled himself to the point of death. Jesus is the one who chose generosity over greed, who for our sakes became poor so that God might lavish the riches of his grace upon us. And Jesus is the one with the eyes of faith. And for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. No one would have looked at Jesus' plan and called it wise or prudent. The disciples tried to talk him out of it, The Jewish leaders chided him for claiming to have the power of God and yet refusing to save himself. But if ever there were eyes of faith, they belong to Jesus, who sees things not as they might appear to be, but as they really are, who saw in the cross not folly, not powerlessness, but salvation and the wisdom of God. So may you and I do the same And through Christ, may God always lift our eyes to return to and to walk in the way of faith. Amen. Let's pray. God, lift our eyes because we confess that we don't see clearly and that we're blind to things at times. Thank you, Jesus, that you have provided a way for us to return to faith when we are faithless, that you also lead and guide us in the way of faith, and that you modeled for us in your saving of us, also modeled for us the way to prioritize people over possessions and people over position. We come this morning, perhaps even more now, aware of those places where we have been faithless, where we need you to restore us and to send us back out into your story, into this great work that you're doing. And so we pray now that you would come and meet us as we come to this table, that you would strengthen us in our weakness, that you would remind us that truly with you, There's forgiveness of sins. There's love and grace and favor from God. And there's great purpose and meaning for our lives. Amen.